Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the far north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces, he is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled, they passed by together. They saw it and so they marveled. They were troubled, they hastened away. Fear took hold of them there and pain as of a woman in birth pangs, as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go all around her. Count her towers. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following, for this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide, even to death. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your word, and we ask that you would help us by the power of your spirit to give us understanding and wisdom, and that you would increase our faith according to your mercy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting to notice that when we look at the bookends of the Bible, we see two very different settings. The Bible begins in a garden, and it ends in a city. God places Adam in creation inside a beautiful garden with lots of fruit trees and lush plants. But it's outside the garden where he places things like gold and onyx and bdellium. He wants Adam and Eve to go outside the garden and to beautify and glorify the world by taking the raw materials he planted out there and turn them into a glorious new creation by subduing it for the glory of God and for the good of his people. And what we see in this city is a significant step in that progression. The author of this psalm is not David, but rather it is a composition of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were a group of Levites who were dedicated to the music of the temple. They composed and arranged various songs for specific occasions or after significant victories. And these psalms also broadly share the theme of the union of God with his people, with Psalm 48 being a great example of this. We might even see our very own group of musicians who compose and direct us in worship as our very own sons of Korah. Well, the name Mount Zion can be used in various ways in the Bible. In the historical books in Scripture, Zion is first used as a name of the city of Jerusalem once David conquers and captures it, and it's called the stronghold of Zion and the city of David. However, the meaning of Zion continues to expand, so by the time of the prophets and the Psalms, it can be used as a synonym for the people of God themselves which makes sense because it is the character of the people of the city that make up the character of the city itself. So Zion can refer to the mountain itself, the whole city, or the people of the city, depending on the setting and the context. 
But we ought to see it as a combination of all of these. Namely, the crowning achievement of all of God's work to establish a new people who exult in worship that he is their God and that he dwells in and with them as their refuge and king. So with that background in mind, let us get into the text of this psalm and enter the gates of Zion so we can explore the beauty of this great city. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in his holy mountain. You can tell a lot about a place by what it praises. The praises of a place describe the characteristics or qualities of the city or the country that make it great or unique. You think of the way America has historically been heralded as the land of the free and the home of the brave. Well, we see right off the bat that the greatness of Zion is rooted in the greatness of the Lord who dwells there. Great is the Lord, is the confession and the battle cry of this city. It is the dwelling of the Lord in this city that establishes its greatness. The city was a fortified stronghold for the Jebusites. But once David shows up with his great Lord on his side, the city is easily overthrown. Because of the greatness of the Lord, the city is marked by great praise. But this isn't just a generic greatness. It's identified by the adjectives that describe this city. This is a holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, and is the joy of all the earth. Psalm 29.2 instructs us to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Here we see the connection of beauty and holiness, which we can often overlook. There's a temptation when we hear of holiness to think of someone who is dry or bland. The Puritans are often derided this way, of being stiff and staunch. But that portrait couldn't be farther from the truth. For the Puritans, because in the Bible, happiness and holiness cannot be separated. To be happy is to be holy or joyful. And to be happy and holy is to be beautiful. And these things are inseparable because holiness, beauty, and joy describe the character and life of our triune God. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is infinitely holy, beautiful, and joyful by nature. The members of the Trinity delight in one another with a perfect and holy joy. So when this God establishes a city and comes to dwell in it, the city takes on his own character. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the far north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. The psalmist here makes a remarkable claim. This city, Mount Zion, is the joy of all the earth. First and foremost, as we mentioned, the reason this place is the joy of all the earth is because God is there. As St. Augustine famously said, the heart is restless until it rests in thee, O God. Mount Zion is the place where the heart finds its rest in God. But the psalmist mentions several other reasons. First, it is the city of the great king. But which great king? Well, the psalmist, when the psalmist speaks of a king, especially in relation to Zion, King David is almost always in mind. 
However, as we'll see in a minute, the events of this psalm uh, that, that this psalm celebrates likely took place under the reign of King Jehoshaphat, who was also a great king. But Jehoshaphat's greatness is related to David's greatness. In fact, the books of Kings and Chronicles almost always assess the goodness and success of a king based on if he walked in the steps of David. In other words, it's based on if they were typical of David. And sure enough, we read in the Chronicler's assessment of Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 17.3, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. The things that great kings do are typical of what the great king David did. David becomes the type, and if a king is like David, if they participate in the things that David did, then they are also remembered as great kings. So what did David do? Well, David did a lot, but generally speaking, he's known for several great accomplishments. He loved and walked in the law of God. He defeated the enemies of Israel. He removed idols from the land, and he established right worship. King David was not perfect, and neither were the great kings that came after him. But in general, if they did these things, the Lord was with them, and they were given rest from their enemies. The second reason why Mount Zion is the joy of all the earth is because it is in this city that God has made himself known as a fortress. There's a tendency in modern culture to generalize God. You might hear people say something like, well, God is everywhere, so I can worship him anywhere. But God is very specific. He has a specific name and a specific character, and he dwells in specific places. When David brought the ark into that city, God took up residence and it became a fortress in that specific place and for that specific people. But the good news of Mount Zion is that citizenship in this city is open to the entire world. We get a glimpse of how God saves his people through the great king and becomes their fortress in this next stanza. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled, and they hastened away. Fear took hold of them there in pain, as of a woman in birth pangs as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. Now this stanza creates kind of a montage of scenes that is broad enough to explain the types of victories that the Lord accomplishes on behalf of his people all over the Bible. But it's also specific enough to, re- to relate to an account that we find in Second Chronicles 20 with King Jehoshaphat, as I mentioned. And there are details in that story that are worth giving a closer look because they shed light on how these types of victories come about. Second Chronicles 20 verse 1 tells us that Moabites and Ammonites were coming against Jehoshaphat in Jerusalem along with the inhabitants from Edom. Jehoshaphat becomes afraid and sets, to, and sets his face to seek the Lord and proclaims a fast throughout all of Judah. So all the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem assembled before him, and Jehoshaphat stands in their midst and offers a long prayer full of confidence and faith. He recounts what God has done in the past, and he expresses his confidence that he will see God's deliverance with his own eyes. The next verses say that Jehoshaphat and all the inhabitants fell on their faces and worshipped. Quote, And the Levites of the Kohathites 
And the Korahites, here's those sons of Korah, stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Verses 20 through 21 tell us, They rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they cried out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe in his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Notice that the singers go before the army, leading them into battle, singing a refrain from Psalm 136. In normal worldly combat, this makes zero sense. Not only does this announce their presence to the enemy, but this will likely get these singers killed quickly. But Mount Zion does not engage in merely earthly battle. She wars with the Lord of hosts on her side, and he sits in heaven, and he does what he pleases. And what happens next puts this on full display. Verses 22 through 30 say, And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Mount Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. There were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. When we say that worship is warfare, we mean it. It is no simple platitude. This is told so explicitly that it's impossible to miss. The people begin to sing and praise, and at that exact moment, the Lord sets an ambush against Ammon and Moab to accomplish victory on behalf of his people. Once the battle is over, the only thing work left to do is to plunder the enemies, so much so that it took three days to gather all of the spoil. What's left is rest and the enjoyment of victory. The second situation mentioned is that God broke the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. And at the end of Second, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 20, there's a brief excursus on Jehoshaphat's reign. It tells us that Jehoshaphat joined with the wicked king of Israel, Azariah, to build ships to go to Tarshish. But a prophet reveals to him that this was a bad idea, and so the ships are destroyed by an east wind. Well, this was clearly not one of Jehoshaphat's shining moments. 
We're not told why they were going to Tarshish, but it was likely to trade for various goods, probably even precious metals. But this wasn't the first time that Jehoshaphat had allied with an evil king. Back in 2 Chronicles 18, just two chapters ago, he allied with wicked King Ahab of Israel. And if you remember, this is when Ahab enticed Jehoshaphat to go to war with him against Ramoth-Gilead. Jehoshaphat eventually agrees, and he goes to battle. And he's nearly killed, but God rescues him, and he escapes by the skin of his teeth. And Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, is killed. The text doesn't also, uh, also doesn't tell us why God shattered the ships at Tarshish. But it would appear that God was preventing Jehoshaphat from entering into another alliance with a wicked king who was headed for destruction. There is judgment there, but also mercy. And despite Jehoshaphat's poor judgment, God was still preserving the good king and proving himself to be a refuge for the people of Zion. Jehoshaphat had heard of God's earlier victories, and now he has seen with his own eyes. Which is why the psalmist proclaims next, As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish it forever. The title that the psalmist describes to God there is not insignificant. In fact, it's directly related to the accounts that we just looked at. The psalmist calls God the Lord of hosts. These hosts are the innumerable angelic army in the heavenly places that God commands to carry out his will. Did you pick up how God accomplished those victories, both against Ammon and Moab and at Tarshish where he shattered the ships? It says he sent an ambush against Ammon, Moab, and Seir, and they all destroyed each other. But this ambush is not from Judah or Jerusalem, as they don't show up till later. This was a heavenly ambush of angels that confused the armies, so they turned on one another and destroyed one another. What was it that destroyed the ships at Tarshish? It was an east wind. Well, Hebrews 1.7, quoting from Psalm 104, says that God makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But the east wind is a special kind of wind. When we look at the types of things that God does with the east wind in Scripture, we see that through it, he performs his mightiest acts of salvation. Back when Pharaoh has his dreams about the seven ears of corn and the seven ugly cows, it is an east wind that strikes them that causes seven years of famine. Psalm 78 says that when God fed his people manna in the wilderness, he caused the east wind to blow in abundance. And in the greatest of God's mighty acts under the old covenant, when he split the Red Sea and delivered his people from Pharaoh and his army, Exodus 14:21 says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. You see, the east wind is a special wind that accomplishes the greatest acts of salvation that are attributed to God alone. And because winds are angels, we might see this wind not just as any angel, but the angel of the Lord. This makes sense because salvation in the Bible always comes from the east. Or, I think, east. East, that way. 
When Adam and Eve were sent out from the garden, they were sent out to the east. It was at the east of the garden that God set the mighty angels with the flaming swords. And this is why Malachi, when prophesying about the coming Messiah, says, The Son of Righteousness, that's S-U-N, Son, will rise with healing in its wings. The sun rises in the east because God created the world so that every time we see a sunrise, we think of Jesus, the angel of the Lord, who rose with healing in his wings. God rules and manages the world from heaven through angels and on earth through his people. As his people sing and worship and pray according to his will, God sends out his angelic host to accomplish the victories that we have no power to accomplish in and of ourselves. It is in the temple that the recounting and celebration of these victories takes place. So the psalmist says, We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Within the structure of this psalm, these verses lie at the center. And this makes sense because to be in God's temple, meditating on his loving kindness, is at the very center, is the very heart of the life of Mount Zion. Thinking on his works of creation and salvation leads to a praise that cannot be contained within the gates of Zion. They will reach the ends of the earth. God's victories in the past cause his people to know that they will continue on into the present and into the future. God's right hand is an expression of his power, and his power is seen in his righteous acts and his just judgments. David confesses this to God with beautiful simplicity in Psalm 119:68. You are good and do good. This desire to be in God's temple in the midst of his people, meditating on his saving righteousness, is captured in another psalm of the sons of Korah, which we already sang this morning, Psalm 84. The opening line expresses this desire. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Well, this last stanza invites us to take a tour of the city. And even more, it interprets the city to us with pretty striking language. Walk about Zion. Go all around her. Count her towers, mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following, for this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide, even to death. This invitation to tour the city of Zion is far more than an invitation to simply behold the external magnificence of the buildings of this city. The glory and the strength and the refuge of the city is a physical representation of the glory and the strength and the refuge of the God of this city. The gold and the precious stones were a reminder of the plunder that God leaves to his people after he, deliver, after he plunders their enemies. 
The strength of the bulwark and the towers was a visible reminder of the strength of God's righteous right hand. But even more, it was a testimony that God was really there. Notice what the psalmist says. This is God. Now the psalmist isn't speaking literally and doesn't intend to be taken literally. The sons of Korah have much better theology than that. But what the psalm is expressing in the strongest language is that to see and hear by faith the works and words of God is to actually see Him. God is a spirit, and so we can't see Him with our physical eyes. But that does not mean that He hasn't made Himself known and made us able to behold Him. No, the word and the works of God are the very means by which God makes Himself known to His creation. They testify to his presence and cause us to know that he is indeed faithful to his promise to be with his people. But there's a danger here as well. Sometimes we don't see by faith and instead we see by our flesh. We become fixed on the external beauty alone. And the physical beauty that God manifests himself through becomes more beautiful to us than the God that it points to. And this is the essence of idolatry. Idolatry is to love any good thing that God has made to the point where it becomes more beautiful and more precious than the God who made it. And this is exactly what happened with this glorious city. Remember, God's purpose from the beginning was not to have one localized mountain in which he dwells in and manifests his saving righteousness. The establishment of Mount Zion was an important one, And it signified an important shift under the old covenant. But even that glorious city on that mountain wasn't the final goal. It was to serve as an outpost from which the light and the glory of the God of that city was to go out to every nation and fill the earth. Remember when God created Adam and Eve, his command to them was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And his promise to Abraham was that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Mount Zion didn't exist for Israel's sake alone, but for the entire world. But over the centuries, Israel became content to exist for its own sake. They became content with hunkering down in Mount Zion rather than bringing Mount Zion to the nations. Instead of establishing Mount Zion in every nation, Mount Zion became like the nations. So in the early chapters of Isaiah, God sends Isaiah to prophesy against Judah and Jerusalem, not only to bring their idolatry to light, but to remind them of his promise to fill the earth with his glory. So Isaiah says in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and shall say, Come, let us go up to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. Do you remember when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4? She understood the importance of mountains for worship. She said to him, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And you remember how Jesus responds? Woman, believe me, 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Well, brothers and sisters, that hour has come and is now here. The cosmic Mount Zion has been established. The cosmic temple, the glorious city, the lofty mountain is here. The author of Hebrews tells us this explicitly in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, Who's into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That glorious city that David established served its purpose for a time. But in the grand scheme of the history of redemption, it was a blueprint. It was a shadow of something that would come that perfectly fits the descriptions of Zion that we hear in this psalm. The church is the reality that this earthly city was a shadow of. The church is the mountain that worships God in spirit and truth and where our great God is greatly praised. The church is not just established in the far north. It is established in the farthest north. The beautiful elevation of that earthly Zion is nothing compared to the beautiful elevation of the very heights of heaven where the great King Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. The church is not just the city of the great King, but the greatest King the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus did everything that David did, except he did them perfectly and cosmically with no stain of sin. He loved the law of God and walked in it. He defeated the greatest enemies of the world, sin, death, and hell. He removed idols and made his people holy. And he didn't just establish right worship as our great high priest, but he stands in the midst of his congregation and leads us in worship every Lord's day. The kings of the earth and heaven set themselves against the Lord and against his Messiah. But it was these that Jesus put to shame and disarmed at the cross and in his glorious resurrection. The church is the place where our collective praises rise to the heavenly host whom God sends out to battle on our behalf. The church is truly a fortress where our king rules and reigns over all all the earth from his untouchable throne, conquering both his and our enemies until all things are brought into submission to him. If the sons of Korah could look at that earthly city of Zion and say, this is God, think of how much more fitting it is for the church. This is the place where we hear the living and active word of God. Here is the body of Christ. The people sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you are filled with God the Spirit. And here is where the body and blood of our Lord is given to us for eternal life. Psalm 48 closes with the words, He will be our guide even to or through death. The church is the place where death is no longer feared, has no more authority, and is in fact death's own grave. 
The Roman centurion who saw Jesus breathe his last breath announced, truly this man was the Son of God. To see the church with the same eyes of faith should leave us proclaiming, truly this is the city of God. The psalmist gives us at least one more reason to tour this city, to behold its beauty and strength, in order to tell the next generation that this is God. Let me close my time with several exhortations. First, to the younger members of our church. Children and teens, I would appreciate your attention for a moment, if I could see your eyes. Hear this good news and take it to heart. The church is truly the joy of all the earth. There is nothing like it on the planet. It is a place of royalty and strength, safety and salvation, wisdom and glory. Never wander or depart from the body of Christ. Make it your home. Long for it like the sons of Korah. God has filled it with gifts for you. Along with your parents, he has given you pastors and elders and deacons to serve you. He has given you a whole new family bonded together through the blood of Christ and God the Spirit. In in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul goes on, goes so far to say that all things are yours, including the world or life or death or the present or the future. All things are yours because you belong to Christ and are members of this city. Jesus promised us that the world would give us trouble. The world will tempt you with empty philosophies and vain ideas, but it will never deliver. At best, the world can only offer counterfeits of what is really and truly found here. Secondly, to the parents of these children and to all the adults who make up this city. Let us imitate this type of love for our children, for the, ch- for the church, for our children. Let us make worship and life in the body a top priority. Let our calendars reflect the importance of fellowship in the body. The palaces of the heavenly Mount Zion are your homes. And so let them be filled with the songs of Zion. Let your love for the people of God be evident to them and never let it grow cold. Introduce these children to the family of saints throughout all the ages that they belong to. Introduce them to the valiant martyrs whose train we follow in, who make up the towers and the bulwarks of this city. In Psalm 16.3, David says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. May God grant us the grace to be of the same mind and heart for the glory of the King, for the strength of Mount Zion, and for the good of the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.